Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Amen. Well, happy Mother's Day. Thank, thank you. Yeah. So uh, we've been in the habit around here of kind of focusing in on relationships this time of year. Uh, seems like this season between Mother's Day and Father's Day is a, is a good season to kind of focus on what's going on in our relationships. And, uh, and I do want to make this note sort of at the beginning. It's typical that as we begin this series on Mother's Day, the church is full Father's Day, not so much, because <laughs> the great desire of all the moms is that they would come to church and get wisdom and spirituality and get grounded, and the great desire of the fathers is to have fun. <laughs> so, so you can keep score however you want in that process. And I think it's important uh, to give you a little update, uh, you may have noticed that some things are changing around here, and so uh, we are one month into this project, uh, officially, we, we broke ground about a month ago, and uh, in that time, all the demolition has been completed, we're at final grade now, the footings are being dug for the new buildings, in a, another few days there'll be concrete uh, poured and new foundations, and we'll start... I guess we're officially at the bottom and now on our way back up, so after one month. That's good. That's good. Thank you. <laughs> and, uh, and just to kind of keep you in the loop, you've also already raised and paid for a little over 25% of the project. And uh, I'm kind of praying that by the grace of God, we might have it half paid for by the time the year ends and we are dedicating these new buildings and this new campus. That would be, I think, a worthy goal, and you can begin to pray. But you're not only being faithful about this project, but you're also being faithful with tithes and offerings because that's all over there doing that work, but over here we're still running a church and doing ministry and all the things that uh, we were doing two years ago, we're still doing, and so that matters. And then not only the project and tithes and offerings, but faith promise. You continue to support and give money that we pass through and give to other, other people and other ministries, and thank you for that. It makes a big difference. Uh, we'll send a team this week. I don't know if you know, but uh, our team is headed to Eswatini on Thursday of this week, so you can be in prayer. I will bring you greetings from Africa next Sunday. So... Uh, uh, in fact, for the next couple of Sundays, I will give you some live updates from Africa and from some of our friends there and the partnership. So thank you for all of that. Keep praying, keep being faithful, keep coming, keep using the, you know, tiny airplane-like bathrooms that we have out there now and eating donuts and fellowshipping and getting to know each other. And most importantly, becoming more Christ-like in the process that we are invited to share. When I think about series about relationships, and this is true for all of the sermons that I preach to you, I think you know this, but I've said it before, I, I, when I am writing, I am thinking about me. I'm thinking about me. So these sermons are written for me. I feel convicted by these sermons. I allow you to listen on Sunday morning. 
Uh, I have experienced this over time, and that is on any given Sunday, someone will come to me and say, Pastor Dave, it was like you were talking directly to me today. And that happens week after week after week after week, which makes me begin to feel that I have every single kind of dysfunction that is available. (laughs) I never run out of material. I just think, what's wrong with me? And then I write a sermon, and somebody says, that was me too. And then the next week, that was me too, and that was me too, and that was me. So I'm the poster child for all dysfunction. The Dictionary Britannica defines dysfunction as the condition of having poor and unhealthy behaviors and attitudes within a group of people. The condition of having poor and unhealthy behaviors and attitudes within a group of people. I said last week, we we understand the problems, but do we believe in the solutions? And so this little series is going to be taken from the life of Jacob and his family. And the, the, the interesting thing to me about that is we're at the very beginning of the God story in the narrative of Scripture. We've had Abraham and Isaac, the infancy narratives, then Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. These are the patriarchs. These are the people, the foundation upon which God will build the narrative of who he is and of the kingdom of God alive on earth. And that these folks suffer from such incredible dysfunction is a hopeful sign for all of us. Amen? I mean, if those people who are so foundational to the story of God have issues, it's likely that you and I are going to have some issues. And so, we understand the problems, but do we believe in the solutions? And so today we're talking just a little bit about wisdom and what that might mean. And I don't mean kind of the highfalutin kind of wisdom. That's a, I don't know, do you guys use that word, highfalutin? Not really very much. Is that a Texas? Highfalutin. Okay. Uh, We're not talking about sophisticated kind of wisdom. We're talking about kind of the lower shelf, kind of down on the bottom, common sense kind of wisdom. And uh, kind of get you in the mood, I have a few quotes here about common sense. The first two are anonymous. Common sense is not a gift. It's a punishment because you have to deal with everyone who doesn't have it. (laughs) Here's another one. Unknown. Common sense is like deodorant. Those who need it most often never use it. Uh, Voltaire. Obviously, we're getting more sophisticated. Common sense is not so common. Robert Ingersoll, it is a thousand times better to have common sense without education than to have education without common sense. Yeah, thank you, thank you. I see where y'all are. I see. Patrick Lencioni, success is not a matter of mastering subtle, sophisticated theory, but rather of embracing common sense with uncommon levels of discipline and persistence. That's an uncomfortable quote, isn't it? Because what that means is, it's not like I don't know what to do. It's like I just don't really want to do it as consistently as I should. I wish things would just get transformed, don't you? I I grew up sort of believing that at some point the Holy Spirit was going to zap me and fix me. 
And then I think somewhere God reveals truth to us and wisdom and says, now I want you to apply it every day, all the time. Don't forget. Mature, grow. In fact, here's what I think you should do. Be wise. I think you should. There is hardly anything that pushes back against dysfunction more than wisdom. It really makes a difference. Now, there's a difference in Scripture between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is the fact or condition of knowing something with familiarity that you've gained either through education or experience. That's knowledge. In the New Testament, we call it gnosis, knowledge. I know things. That is not the same thing as Sophia, wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge plus understanding plus knowing how to apply that knowledge and understanding. Like some people are really smart, but they're not really good on the application end of things. And it can't truly be called wisdom unless it is allowed to be discerning. When I was doing research for this sermon, this was one of the most surprising things to me, is how many institutions of higher learning are investing time in the exploration of wisdom. I don't know. It seems like in our culture you would expect that, that sometimes our institutions of higher learning are producing a lack of common sense and not focused on it. So it was kind of refreshing. One such study called Why You Need Wisdom and How to Be More Wise According to Science, written by Ph.D. Tracy Brower, says this. Wisdom is more than just knowledge. It's the application of knowledge and the discernment that comes from perspective. Knowing Knowledge is knowing what to say. Wisdom is knowing when and how to say it. It is possible, she says, to develop wisdom that previous research from the University of California, San Diego, makes it pretty straightforward to understand, to build, and to develop wisdom. The study found there are five key areas that help us cultivate wisdom. You ready? I was waiting for you all to get your pens and pencils out so you could take these down. (laughs) Number one, if you want to cultivate wisdom, consider others. One of the main components of wisdom is a sense of empathy towards others. It is altruism and the ability to cooperate. It makes sense when making decisions and deciding on courses of action, the wise person thinks about how their actions will affect those around them. Amen? Number two, manage yourself. Another element of wisdom is the ability to regulate your emotions. As you seek to develop your wisdom, be aware of yourself and actively reflect your own state of mind, opinions, and attitudes. And then be able to make choices about what you share and how you appropriately control your emotions. That's a whole sermon right there. that we're supposed to consider others as we think about what we're doing and the choices and decisions we're making and the attitude with which we live. What is dysfunction? It's behaviors and attitudes that are poor among a group of people. I'm supposed to consider others, but I have to manage myself. I have to have some emotional muscle that says, this is what I think, this is what I feel, but now I have to I have to hold that in an appropriate space. And as I learn to do that more than more, I am gaining wisdom. And wisdom pushes back against dysfunction. She goes on. We are to seek diversity. Wisdom demands ongoing learning. 
And this can only come from true openness to different points of view and a belief we don't already have all the answers. Wise people have a sense of humility, realizing their point of view is not the only one and appreciating how much they don't know. And so when we stop and think about, is that my attitude? Is that my spirit? We live in a culture that is demanding that we make big decisions about things that are actually kind of above our pay grade. And sometimes the cultivation of wisdom is to be able to sort of understand what we don't know and that there are different points of view and we are gentle in our life and world. Number four, she says, embrace uncertainty. Another element of wisdom is the ability to deal effectively with ambiguity. As humans, we crave clarity and certainty, so the maturity of wisdom allows us to work through this natural inclination and find ways to make judgments, take action, and be constructive even without much clarity. So sometimes we not only are very open to other points of view and perspectives, but sometimes we also double down. We decide we must be certain about things. Uh, Colton shared with you a, a quote a few weeks ago. He brought it up again this week. Paul Tillich says, The opposite of faith is not doubt. It's certainty. And sometimes in the mystery of who God is and how He works, we are uncomfortable with the mystery of God. We try to explain every little thing about God, but His ways are higher than our ways. And His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so we pursue with all of our energy, obedient to the Word of God, obedience to His will, obedience to His Spirit, but we do so humbly. We do so carefully. We do so with a reality that sometimes we have to look someone in the eye and say, I don't know. I don't know how to explain what God is doing in this set of circumstances. I, I don't know how to explain what's happened in view of His grace and His sovereignty. I don't know the answer to that. But that doesn't keep me from having faith. It doesn't keep me from walking forward. It doesn't keep me from making good decisions. Wisdom embraces uncertainty. And finally, wisdom takes the long view. It's built through the ability to put aside short-term gain to make decisions that are for the long-term results. I think if we just took those five things produced again in one of our institutions of higher learning and produced not with any ideas about faith or religion, if we just actually put those into practice, a lot of things in our culture might change. We are far too focused on the short-term gain we don't really know about the long-term consequences of so many of the things we've engaged in in our world. And so for each of us, to slow down and think about how do these things affect my family? How are they affecting my relationships, the people that I know? Everybody doing okay? Yes. We're going to talk about Jacob and his family. I thought it'd be fun if you learned about Jacob and his family. So here's a graphic for you to just a whole family tree. Here they are. There it is. I know you probably can't read that, so I'm going to translate it for you. So up at the top is Abraham, and Abraham, it turns out, had three wives. He had Hagar, Sarah, and from Hagar was Ishmael, and from Sarah was Isaac. But after the death of Sarah, he has a third wife, and her name is Keturah. And if you trace those other six children, you'd find many of the Idianites in the Old Testament, the Midianites, and the, come from these, this line 
after the death of Sarah. By Isaac, uh, Isaac marries Rebekah, and Rebekah has two sons, Jacob and Esau. You kind of remember all of that. And uh, Esau is the oldest, but sells his birthright to Isaac. Isaac then becomes the line that leads us. I mean, Jacob then becomes the line uh, that leads us to the 12 tribes of Israel. All right, everybody with me? Why do we call Jacob Israel? Because he's the father of the 12 tribes. Did he father all 12 of the leaders of the 12 tribes? No, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) In fact, Jacob has four different wives. Uh, Technically, he has two wives and then says children by their servants. By Billah, he has two, Dan and Naphtali. By Leah, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Ishakar, Zebulun, and Dinah. By Zilpah, Gad, and Asher. And by Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now, if you totaled that up, that would be 13 children that uh, uh, are Jacob's children. So let's uh, figure out how we get to the 12 tribes. Number one, Dinah is a daughter, and so she, does not, she is not then the father of one of the tribes. Levi is the head of the priestly clan that is dispersed among the other tribes, so he doesn't have a tribe by his name, though the Levites play a prominent role in the rest of the time. And the third person who doesn't have a tribe in the family of Jacob is Joseph. Instead, Joseph's two children take the place to make out then the final 12, and that would be Manasseh and Ephraim. So there's the 12 tribes. There's the whole family tree. This little series is going to focus only on Jacob and his family. And it seems to me we could talk about Abraham and the dysfunction of that generation. We could certainly talk about Isaac and the dysfunction of that generation, but we're going to talk about Jacob and the dysfunction of his generation. And it isn't necessary that dysfunction follows the generations, but it sometimes seems that that is the case. And so when we stop and think about how do we push back against some of that dysfunction, we're thinking together about that this morning. I'm going to read to you just uh, the opening piece of the story. You can, uh, you can sort of uh, attach to the dysfunction as you hear it come out. Genesis 37.1, Jacob lived in the land where his fathers had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. And Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. And he said to them, listen, I had a dream. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose up and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. And Joseph, in his wisdom, kept his dreams to himself from then on. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. That's not what it says. (laughs) Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. 
And when he told it to his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. There's a lot going on in this process. There's a lot of things happening that probably don't represent, even at the very beginning, common sense. And you don't have to read very far in this process before you go, man, this is not a family system I would really want to be in. I, I don't think I would want to be a part of this thing that's going on, these petty jealousies, this favoritism that's being exercised within the context of this family. And yet, this is the patriarchal story. This is the beginning of the covenant. And so I see three things in here that I think deserve a little bit of time and energy. Number one, there is, to be pursued by us, the wisdom of a healthy disposition. The wisdom of a healthy disposition. Now, I don't know exactly what the grievance was that Joseph had with his brothers. We're not told. We're just told that he brings a bad report to his father. Now, we can surmise a couple of things. We can surmise that it wasn't that big of a deal because we don't find uh, Jacob responding and handling it. And so it seems like probably there's some sort of petty issue that he brings to the attention of his father. And it probably has more to do with Joseph's favored position and sort of his ability to ingratiate himself to his father than that he's righting some grievous wrong. And it seems to me that sometimes, within the context of our relationships and families, we can have a disposition that looks for what's wrong instead of for what's right. That, in fact, we can become the critics of those around us. We can become the troubleshooters. We can become the ones that see the dysfunction, see things that aren't what we think they should be, and call it out. The scripture, in fact, Jesus talks to us about the fact that when your eyes become dark, then the darkness inside you is very complete. And what he means by that is when you look out at the world with eyes that see the negative, with eyes that see things that are dysfunctional and broken, then inside something begins to darken and become hopeless and become strained. It's not about that we ignore things that need to be addressed. That's not really the point. The point is that there, for all of us, is this sort of tendency to look at the petty things instead of focusing on the things that might build up instead of tear down. Amen? So, Romans 15, 1 and 2. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves, each of us, should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Luke 6.31, do to others as you would have them do to you. Ephesians 4.29, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what's helpful for the building up of others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. 1 Peter 2.1, Therefore rid yourself of all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind. Do we have a disposition that builds up instead of tears down? There's no doubt that we have to have hard conversations with people. There's no doubt that there are things that need to be confronted and changed. But what is our disposition towards what is our default? What is our default? How do we see the world? And when people around us consider us to be 
I'd hear her tell things, and I'd be like, that, that didn't happen, Mom. That's not true. That's not true. But you just go ahead. But you just go ahead. Because <laughs> you know what? It turned out I had plenty of people to keep me grounded. But I had one person, but I had one person that believed in me, that cheered for me. And you know what? I don't know. This is, I'm going to drop a psychological bomb on you. Are you ready? Braced. We like people who like us. Boom. And, and that's generally true. People like people that like them. That think they're special. And when we convey that to others, it matters. We convey it to our children. We convey it to our friends. When we are building up, it makes a big difference. We are to have a healthy disposition. There is wisdom in this healthy disposition, and it's a biblical call. Number two, there is a wisdom of a deep sense of fairness. A deep sense of fairness. So, Joseph was loved by his father above all of his brothers. This is not a great setup for family life. It's not a fair setup. And he didn't just love Joseph more than his brothers. He gave him special gifts that he didn't give to his other sons and daughters. He, he treated him differently. He showed favoritism to Joseph above all of the others. Now, most of us have lived long enough to know that this is probably not a healthy exchange between parents and children, that we probably are trying to treat all of our children the same and fairly. And in all honesty, for most of us, we love all of our kids, even though they're different and unique and they all have different strengths and weaknesses. We don't really think in those terms, that we like some of them better than the others. I, I have never once sat down and thought, you know, I have a grading scale of my children and these are the favored ones and that just doesn't enter my mind. They're not disposable. They're all very vital to my existence, you know. But with that said, we may show favoritism in other ways about other things in our life. Maybe outside the context of our own family, we show favoritism about issues, about beliefs, about structures. And I think this little piece of common sense is lost. Are we being fair? Are we being fair? One of the things that pushes back against dysfunction in relationship is just a deep sense of fairness. Is this fair? Am I treating other people the way I want to be treated? If I, was, if I heard somebody else talking about me the way I'm talking about them, would I be happy with that? Is this okay for me? Is the way I'm thinking and the way I'm talking, is, is this something that would be honoring to Christ? Who, by the way, did boil it down to this. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Just a few verses later. And do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Yeah, that's in there. Words of Jesus. Sermon on the Mount. Treat other people the way you want to be treated. It pushes back against a world of dysfunction. Do we practice it? We know the problems. Do we believe in the solutions? And then finally, there is the wisdom of thoughtful discretion. So Joseph had a dream. And in the dream, he, 
He saw all the sheaves of grain bowing down to him. And he went immediately to the brothers who didn't like him very much and said, Guess what? I've had a dream. And all y'all, that's Texas talk. I mean, technically y'all is plural, but just so you know the proper grammar. All y'all. And all y'all were bowing down to me. All y'all. And they hated him all the more. And then he had another dream. Now you would think that somewhere in Joseph's brain he would have connected the dots. And he would have gone, you know what? This isn't a great relationship building thing to talk about. This isn't building sort of any kind of, you know, harmony in our home and family. But somehow the discretionary piece of his brain is disconnected. And in fact, he has another dream. And this time, listen, I can't imagine Joseph telling this. I had another dream. And the sun and the moon and all of the stars bowed down to me. Sometimes, just because it's in our brain doesn't mean it needs to come out of our mouth. Amen? Yeah. That there's actually a checkpoint here. In fact, you've heard of the three gates that you put at your mouth. Is it true? And that doesn't mean I think it's true. That doesn't mean I speculate that it's true. It doesn't mean it's true for me. It means, is it true? Number two, is it necessary? Do I need to say this? Is it adding anything? Is it important that I say it? Number three, is it kind? If it can't pass the three gates, it doesn't need to come out. There should be a, a thoughtful discretion in what we speak out of our mouths in relationship because words have life. They have energy. They have force. Don't you know in this story, that time that, you know, uh, uh, Isaac deceives his father, I mean, uh, uh, Jacob deceives his father, and so Isaac speaks the blessing on Jacob instead of Esau. Remember that? How many of you know that story? Okay. So Jacob comes, and he and his, mother's, he and his mother connive, and they deceive Isaac, and then he receives the blessing from the father that belongs to his older brother. You know, he dresses up like his brother, he puts his brother's clothes on, he puts clo uh, sheepskin on him so he's hairy like his brother. His dad is blind by this time, and they, they receive the blessing. How many of you ever read that story and go, well, we'll just take it back and bless the other brother? Why not? Because the Scripture understands that words have life, and once they're spoken, you can't take them back. They will go and bear the fruit that they will go and bear. And I don't think we believe that very much. I think we can say anything we want. We live in a culture that ought to be quiet. We, we, we have leadership that would do far better to just stop. Just be quiet. Just don't talk for a while. We have social media. It feels like everything that can be spoken must get spoken. It must get spoken. Listen, that's not healthy for relationships. It's not healthy. Are we going to have to say some hard things? Sure. Or sometimes we're going to have to criticize or, or, or say some things and stand up for truth. Yeah, we shouldn't have fun at it. I read a thing one time that said, who should be qualified 
to speak into the lives of others difficult things, those who do not enjoy it, those who don't find any pleasure in it at all. That's a good discretionary gate, isn't it? I'm going to say this, and it's going to be so fun. And then maybe you shouldn't say it. Amen? I want to practice some healthy disposition. I want to see people and the world in a positive light. I do. I, I want to look at them the way God sees them. I, I, I want to see them as a creation of my heavenly Father who, who is deserving of my love and my grace and also my truth. <laughs> I, I, I want to help them. I want to shape them. I, I want to pull them in a direction of following God's word and his will. I believe it's healthy. I believe it's right. I believe it's good. I believe it matters. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see people in a loving way, the way I think Jesus would say, the way Jesus did when he walked around on this earth, he saw people of great worth that no one else recognized and no one else saw and no one else treated that way. I want to be that way too. And I want to have a deep sense of fairness. Is it fair? Am I treating other people the way I want them? Do these words that I'm speaking, would I feel good if I found out they were talking like this about me over at their house right now? If not, I, I don't think I'm being very fair. I don't want to practice a, a thoughtful sort of discretion at what I say. We know the problems. I think if you're like me, you just wish God would fix everything. But instead, I think he says, here's some wisdom let it shape you today, this afternoon, tomorrow, tonight, next week. Mature. Mature. God, would you please allow us to really savor your word, to think about what it means for us to become the people who represent you in this world, that all of the aspects that you hold in perfect tension, love and grace and mercy, but also justice and truth, may we be those people who walk in humility, who are thoughtful about our perspectives and our words. We recognize the power in them. And I pray for homes and families represented here online who will watch throughout the week ahead. I, I, I pray that these little words could could nurture a pushback against dysfunction. And as we follow this family over these next few weeks, there's going to be so many opportunities to say, here's some, some practical things we could apply in our home and in our family and in some severed and broken relationships that, that could have some hope of bringing healing. Will you bless those efforts? Will you bless us with hope that things can continue to get better and thrive and there can be more harmony and more love and better connection teach us we offer ourselves to you our vision our hope our goal is to become more and more and more like you so may the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts be ordered by you and therefore pleasing to you we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, will you stand as we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.